Hi, thanks for joining Service Transformation. My name is Ben Ellaby, the VP of Engineering at Theodore, and today I'm joined with Nicole and Sheen from the Lego Group, and we're going to talk about different aspects of their adoption of serverless and how they're building in production with it. Nicole, would you like to give a quick introduction to yourself? Sure. I'm Nicole Yip, a Senior Infrastructure Engineer at the Lego Group. I'm working in the platform team on the team that is behind the shop part of lego.com. So when you go to Lego and online and you want to go and browse for a product um, and check out, then that's that's what my team are supporting. Awesome. And Sheen, do you want to give an instruction to yourself? Sure. Uh, so I'm Sheen Brussels. I'm a senior engineering manager at the Lego Group, uh, working with the Nicole in the same team. So I'm I was one of the uh, persons behind uh, the journey of serverless at uh, lego.com. Amazing. And I think a lot of people will recognize your uh, your voice from the talks you've been giving about mm-hmm. the, the serverless journey with Lego. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So the first part I'd like to jump into is talking about, um, we've talked a lot about the, the journey of uh, Lego into serverless, but talking about what you're currently working on would be super interesting. Um, so, Nicole, I want to talk to you about the pipelines, the monitoring, and also the internal auditing of serverless applications that you guys are doing. Um, what do the pipelines for serverless look like at the Lego shop at the minute, Nicole? So, at the moment, we have, well, we're using CircleCI to do both our integration and deployment pipelines. So, our development team have all of their code stored in GitHub. Then we go through a peer review process. So when a PR is raised, it will trigger off um, tests that run in CircleCI. Um, we run all of our unit tests and linting and, and all of those sanity type checks. And we also have a selector script that detects which service you've changed in our mono repo and will run those specific integration tests as well. Once your PR has been merged to develop, that kicks off the deployment pipelines. So these are also orchestrated by CircleCI. We deploy through three different environments. So as I said, when your PR is merged, you service is deployed to the development environment where um, the integration tests will run again. The developers have access to verify if their changes were implemented and deployed correctly. Um, and then we have an acceptance environment where we have end-to-end tests that, um, that run that are written in Cypress. And this environment is so that we can check that the deployment process happened correctly and, and that there's, there's a, a much fuller suite of testing that happens end-to-end um, for our platform. And then the final step is deploying to production. And so this is exactly the same process that is followed to deploy your service to, de- uh, to the development environment and to the acceptance environment. And so theoretically, none of the deployment steps should change. We have some tests that our QA engineers run just to, as a smoke test to, to make sure that the production environment is still up and running and all of the core flows are working as expected. In terms of the serverless services, we use the serverless framework to do this deployment. So um, it's as simple as running SLS deploy, and that's what happens inside our Circle CI pipelines. Cool, that makes complete sense. And you mentioned um, that integration tests are running on each pull request, but even before they're deployed into a development or a production environment. Are you creating a stack then specific to every pull request? Yes. So in we actually have four different environments, but only three are used in our deployment pipeline. In the, the very first 
um, environment that we have is one that we call playground. And so that's for our developers to um, deploy their function while they're developing, um, test out um, any new features that they're implementing. And it's all by our integration pipeline. So when it runs an integration test, it run it deploys the stack to the playground environment and runs some tests against that. So it it's also deployed in a in its own stage. So um, the, all of the resource names are suffixed with a, a unique identifier that we know CircleCI uses, so that we we can make sure that it cleans up after itself. Nice. Are, are there any non-serverless components in your architecture that make that more challenging? Yes, there are. So the serverless framework covers Lambda functions, DynamoDB tables, and SQSQs, and all of that really well. Um, but we also have some Fargate applications that are part of our end-to-end stack. So the Fargate applications are for our front-end applications and a GraphQL layer. These are not deployed by the serverless framework. They're deployed by Terraform. And so that uh, division is, a, is challenging for us to create a, a true end-to-end, um, I guess, feature environment for our developers to fully test their features. So that's one of the things on our roadmap um, to, I guess, resolve. Okay, and um, asking a bit of a challenging question, but I think related to that, what are the things you don't currently like about your serverless uh, deployments system? Mm, that is a challenging question. I think the what I mentioned before about not having a true end-to-end feature environment for our developers, because the that essentially means that the first time that they have that they're able to test a feature with their back-end change and any front-end changes is in the development environment, which means you've already kicked off the deployment pipeline. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the main thing we want to get in is an end-to-end connected feature environment. Yeah, and I think that's something a lot of people struggle with, especially with those non-serverless components. Moving away a bit from the, the pipeline parts, uh, your teams are working uh, a lot with a lot of serverless code at this point. What's your strategy about maintaining code quality and security practices across the different applications that you run? That's a good question. So in terms of security practices, we're looking into um, some secure coding courses for our developers to generally uplift the um, the, the knowledge level of the team around um, typical security application, application security coding practices. Um, and aside from that human element, we're introducing automated scanning tools. So things like OWASP Zap, we're running that on our acceptance environment every night. Um, and that picks up, well, that, that scans all of our potential um, deployment candidates as we deploy to the acceptance environment every, well, three times a day. Um, and then maybe uh, I saw Sheen maybe tweet out recently um, about the serverless well-architected lens and how you guys are using that. Could you talk a bit about that, Nicole? Sure. So that's a, a new process that we're adding into our, I guess, end-to-end development lifecycle. So when a new service is being thought about and designed in, the, in that architecture stage, we're also going through, we're, we're using the well-architected framework from AWS as a guideline on the different parts of of the solution that need to be thought about. And then after the service has been developed and it's been tested out in the, in a, in the development environment, we sit down with the developers and we go through that checklist again. 
and we just see if everything has been covered, what's still missing, and it, this brings our developers more awareness of not just I'm developing a service to these specifications. I'm also thinking about the the security and the alerting and you know the the other parts that relate to the operation of the service. Nice. And how how's that been received by your team? So they they enjoying working with it? Is it something they feel like? It's sort of a, an audit coming onto them. I know it's difficult when you come up with these sort of checks on applications. Um, it sometimes becomes difficult for you know the maybe the security team to enable the development team to move quickly. Is this something the developers have got really behind, or is it something sort of still forming within the team? I would say it's very much still forming within the team. We've since we've introduced this process, we've had one new service that has gone through that process so it's it's about iterating on how how the how those developers received the audit and I guess modifying our process so that it becomes more streamlined there's not as much admin overhead um, and it it is more of a learning and a learning and awareness exercise rather than a you know tick the box at any cost type thing sure and with all of that, so you're obviously doing amazing things with your pipelines, really cool things with the well-architected tool. Now, on the technical side, um, in terms of application development, what, what interesting things are you working on internally at the moment? Uh, well, we're currently working on, so since I'm in the platform team, my focus is mostly around how we operate and monitor the platform. So one big drive that we have at the moment is that we're putting in New Relic distributed tracing and logging and and fully getting on board onto the New Relic platform. So that's been an an interesting journey of, I guess, bringing our services one at a time onto this platform and seeing what kind of metrics and insights we're getting. Because beforehand, it wasn't very observable what was going on in in the serverless part of our stack. Um, We... We use the application performance monitoring part of New Relic quite heavily for our front-end apps. And so now we're, we're expanding um, how much we can see by bringing on all of our services, serverless services into New Relic as well. Nice. And are there any other third-party sort of observability providers that you've been using for your service applications or is it just New Relic so far? So far, it's just New Relic. We did have a look at a lot of other, um, other observability providers in the specifically for the serverless space and it was a trade-off between do we add an yet another tool that we need to onboard and um, get developers familiar with or do we stick with a, a large partner that we're already working with um, and then when you're debugging you don't have to switch context and so that that was one of the main driving factors yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think people do want to keep the number of tools that developers are using uh, not too big partly the the payment side, but also just the switching tools and the context switch, as you mentioned. Um, great. That was great, Nicole. Um, if we move on to the next section then around EventBridge, Sheen, uh, are you ready if I ask you a few questions? Sure. Go ahead. Cool. Um, so, Sheen, you've been working with EventBridge for a while, and I think a lot of us have been reading your content, and it's, it's been really useful for me and I think a lot of other people. I've been writing a bit recently about how we go from sort of the the idea, the business domain problem through to an event-driven architecture with EventBridge using the event storming uh, workshop from domain-driven design. Is that something you guys have been using internally or you, do you have a different process around going from idea to a, to an event-driven uh, architecture with EventBridge? Okay, so first of all, 
uh, your uh, that blog post was excellent one. So if I had to start from the scratch, so that's the way I would go. But for us, it's not completely from scratch, right? So we can't, um, you know, uh, go with those sort of uh, uh, steps that you described as part of the uh, event storming process. The challenge for us is how we can incorporate, because EventBridge was announced the day after we moved to serverless. So the challenge is how we can incorporate EventBridge into the, into the ecosystem in such a way that it won't disrupt the whole thing. So, so that means we, we, we have to take a different approach. So the, so the approach we take is kind of a carefully thought out approach. So we, first of all, we focus on uh, microservice to microservice communication, that sort of the pattern. So in that case, we already have the services in place. So it's a matter of identifying the points where a service can emit events. So this, this, these events, I'm talking about business events. So that's one approach we are taking. And when we look at the, uh, the, the structure of an event, so we have sort of a template, common template that we try to follow uh, as much as possible because that gives us the uh, kind of a standardization when it comes to the filtering and the routing side of things. Uh, the second level is to work, look at the other opportunities where we can raise events. So I was talking to Nicole earlier today how we can streamline the uh, service alerts and alarms going through the event bus. So that's another next step that we are, you know, starting to uh, bring in. So we haven't even, we haven't yet uh, touched upon the partner event side yet. Knowing that we work with the Neuralink and uh, PagerDuty, both are, you know, event bridge partners. So that's the challenge when you have something already in production and we try to incorporate a, a, a new service. But if I have to start a new development from scratch, definitely the approach will be different. That approach will be something similar to, you know, what you explained in your, uh, uh, the approach, Ben. So that makes complete sense, especially when you, when you come with this sort of uh, domain-driven approach and you have your domains and uh, obviously that will, uh, you know, evolve into having the domain events and that becomes a good candidate for, the events that will flow through the through the bus, so so that's roughly uh, the the kind of uh, struggle or the challenges and the progress that we are move, uh, we are making with the event bridge. Sure, that was really great, Chin. Um, one thing you touched on there was the structure of the events, so the schema of the events. I know EventBridge has some really interesting tooling in the EventBridge schema registry that I've been playing around with. It's not available in every region yet. Is this something that your team are using or is this, are you doing something different to share schemas at the moment? Uh, not yet, but I'm also waiting for the um, the schema registry to become GA because uh, the region where we our services are is not yet available. So it's in Ireland, but uh, not in uh, uh, Central EU. So, so that will definitely we will we will make use of that. So, one thing I I, I often uh, ask engineers to do is to capture the structure as part of the you know the code repository somewhere, so that uh, when it becomes available, it becomes easier for us to incorporate and have all the 
schema validation and things like that in place. And especially when we deal with the sort of service to service, microservice to microservice communication it is quite important because they act as the, you know, the contract points, right? So yeah, keen on, keen on uh, schema registry and uh, yeah, waiting for that as well. And one thing, um, I, I'm obviously quite a big fan of EventBridge. I think you, you guys are too. Um, it's not something everyone's a fan of, and some of it, some people see it as a bit of the return to the enterprise service bus, which uh, wasn't everyone's favorite way of developing. Mm -hmm. Have you had any pushback in your team, or or has everyone been quite pro using EventBridge and enjoyed it so far? Um, people like EventBridge as they come to know more about it, but definitely I had pushbacks from different teams, different engineers. So those uh, pushbacks. Uh, mainly around the drawbacks of EventBridge. So a typical scenario is um, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a different department. So we, you know, the, the, we're working on exchanging some data uh, feeds from uh, one team to the other. So I was proposing this uh, cross-account event sharing option, which becomes easier so we can avoid the API gateway uh, mechanism. But the immediate uh, question was, uh, how do we do, what do we do if we lose an event, okay? And then the other question is, is there, a, you know, uh, the the sequence of events, how can we replay the events if we, if we you know, lost a uh, few events and et cetera. So that's one situation. The On the other side, um, uh, I have heard questions like, oh, we have SNS, why do we need to introduce something else? But thing is, they're, they're completely two different spectrums, right? So EventBridge has more capabilities and more flexibility for you to maneuver or deal with the incoming and outgoing event than what you can do with uh, you know SNS. But of course, in terms of uh, performance latency, they have different uh, you know um, uh, targets and numbers, but that's different. So. So I, I did have, you know, the challenges, but uh, knowing that uh, the EventBridge team are working hard to bring out, uh, you know, many new good features in the near future. And, uh, you know, I can only say it's just an amazing service that, uh, you know, you will get more and more uh, people uh, start using it. And I guess, Shun, you're quite in touch with the EventBridge team and probably can't talk too much about their um, future roadmap. But at a high level, what are your thoughts about how, event-driven serverless, maybe EventBridge particularly, but event-driven service as a whole. What are your thoughts about how this is going to progress over the next few years? I think it has a very good future because as you know that the, the entire the serverless community is behind it. So you can you can you can, you can think of every every you know sort of serverless heavyweight heroes everyone talking about. It's not just talking. People are now coming up with and sharing uh, uh, real use cases or real um, scenarios where they start using uh, EventBridge. So so in my talks, I kind of touch upon a few use cases. This, these kind of use cases grow day by day. So the the other thing, I, as I mentioned, that is the, the, the projection of using EventBridge as a hub and spoke model for all the serverless services to communicate. That's a great thing. And thing is, the other other thing is that uh, it it uh, it incorporates that sort of filtering and the pattern matching and other flexibilities, so that eliminates uh, the the use of uh, lambda functions. Otherwise, we need to you know in you know, you know put in place 
in order to manipulate with all those events. So we, we are kind of moving towards the sort of functionless or uh, writing less code approach. So which I think is a, is a good thing. And uh, when we have more features added on and when we pe when people, uh, the, the teams get more confidence in uh, using event bridge with those, uh, you know, uh, new features as they, as they you know, uh, get released, I think it will get more and more people uh, adopting. So that's my uh, kind of uh, prediction that it will just, you know, um, elevate to a different uh, different level in the future. I think I completely agree with you on that. And it's really exciting to see the serverless community rallying around it. Yep. Um, moving on to the next uh, part of this, um, Sheen, just a very quick question. You've spoken a lot about uh, why Lego sort of started moving to serverless. But could you just give us a quick summary of what the business case, what the business reasons rather than the technical reasons were for Lego adopting serverless initially? So, um, so within, uh, within, within the, the e-commerce side, the lego.com, uh, one of the main reasons was obviously we wanted to migrate to a new platform and new technology um, to, to uh, reach out more uh, customers and children across the world. So that's the, you know, the top level. But then, uh, when you look at the the the, the bottom levels, is like uh, we struggled with the hosted um, um, the solution and the and the struggle getting every release out and the involvement of uh, engineers, infra engineers, spending days or you know hours, and th when things go wrong, you know, it's all sorts of the the the, 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 the typical. Um, you know, hosting nightmare uh, solutions or situations. So one 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 principle that we uh, uh, put in place that time was that uh, if we have a, a, a technology that would allow us to be hands free, not dealing with all this uh, scaling up and down ourselves or even automated way, but not you know sort of uh, touching containers and things like that. So that's when serverless kind of picking up. And when we initially experimented with uh, a few use cases that, you know, suited perfectly well. Many, many, you know, as you know, when, when, when someone starts fresh on serverless, obviously tons of questions from cold start to performance to this security to this and that. So we also been through all those, uh, you know, different stages. Then, so, you know, as you gain more experience, you get more confidence. And then once we, we we launch serverless, then everyone can see the benefit. And soon people wanted to add more features and release, you know, uh, more things frequently. So that became more and more of a reality now. So so that we kind of now, you know, gaining um, momentum. I, 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 you know, I talk about this accelerating with serverless. That is indeed true, actually. So that you know that that is the reality. So, so that that's sort of the you know the business uh, way of why we are moving in this direction. Sure, and I think a lot of those points will resonate with a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. From the total cost of ownership side, from a platform team perspective, how have you seen the difference working with serverless as opposed to what you were working with before? Um, I, I mean, I can't go into the the details, but at a high level, in terms of the cost of ownership, I mean, it's, it's difficult to compare when you have a big corporate, when you have different teams, and uh, you know, when when things move around and structures change. But um, so so we have sort of the monthly. Okay, we are okay if you are within this sort of a range. Okay, so 
within that sort of the you know the the the, the limits when i look at the the monthly you know uh, bills uh, especially for the serverless side because my um, because we already we also have the forget uh, for the front end and graph layer so when i look at the serverless side of things and the services related to that not just the lambda functions the you know the dynamo s3 cloudwatch this and that i think we are you know well 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 under um, our uh, sort of expectation so so that i think we are, we are we are good on that side um and then i guess sheen you wanted to make this a bit more dynamic and less of sort of me just asking you guys questions did you want to ask me any questions about um how theater has been using serverless and what we've been doing with it exactly yeah 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 because that's the that's the interesting thing because uh, we are just the sole ecom lego.com but uh, you work with the many clients and many use cases so why don't you just uh, expand on um, you know few of the the different use cases you work with the different clients on serverless sure yeah so as you mentioned we work with a range of clients from startups launching you know their initial uh, product and getting testing their product market fit to large companies doing their digital transformation or their serverless transformation um, and with those small startups, it's really about the speed, being able to get those features out the door with a small technical team and also keeping the costs down. So when the application is not being used, having the cost being very low and when it scales up, having that happen automatically without a huge uh, team of Kubernetes experts and also having that happen economically is a big benefit. So with a lot of startups who are doing 100% serverless applications from day one and the speed benefits really interesting. There is, of course, you know, an upskilling element that comes with that serverless allows you to do amazing things very quickly, but there is a lot to learn and developers are really empowered to move very quickly across the full stack on the front end, through to the back end and the infrastructure all together in a very fast way, which means that there's a lot of skills that some developers need to be trained on. And a lot of our projects revolve around kicking off with best practices using things like EventBridge, which we talked about earlier, and Service Framework uh, and CircleCI, which are, are two tools that we also use. Um, so getting teams started with best practices, but then doing a lot of pair programming to train teams about how to build with best practices and serverless is where we're seeing a lot of impact with the startups. With the larger companies doing their digital transformation, it's a lot about figuring out how we can do an initial sort of proof of the concept of serverless in their organization. So something like, a, I don't know, a PDF generation uh, in a finance department is always a good candidate to sort of shift that over to a Lambda function with S3 and show the sort of operation decrease uh, this, the, the amount of operation work decreases, security becomes simpler, scaling becomes faster, and the team become more empowered. And then it's a case of how do we roll that out across the organization? Because it's something you mentioned earlier. It's not a case of complete greenfield, let's think about all the events for the first time. With a lot of companies, it's they already have a system, they already have a way of working. And a lot of the time, the complexity in code bases and infrastructure is directly proportional to the complexity in the organization. So sometimes it's a case of really using those event storming workshops, which I've written about before, to try and break down the silos in those larger companies, get agreement about how events flow through the company, what the processes are, and then converting that into a serverless architecture is the almost the easier part. And training and upskilling is still important there, but I think with the large companies, it's a lot about making the business processes work for event-driven rather than purely technical challenges. Um, interesting, interesting. So you mentioned startups and uh, big corporates. So I have two questions uh, specifically on that. So, so, so maybe with a big corporate. So when you when you when you start working with the corporates, have you ever 
come across with a kind of resistance from the existing teams to move to serverless or a new technology. If you did, how, how, what, what, how, how you kind of handle that sort of situation? Yeah, so it's a good point because some clients come to us because, uh, let's say, we're experts in React Native in London and people come to us for that, or we're experts in serverless or experts in, in Python and Django development and different things, and they come to us for the technology. Some companies come to us for our agile Scrum methodology, the way we work, and some companies come to us from referrals about you know how we've worked with other clients in the past. And when they come to us with a non-technical uh, approach, it's often easy to talk to them about this is the best technology for the job uh, based off our experience. When they come to us with already having a technology in mind, convincing them about serverless can be a bit more challenging. Largely, I found the reception to be quite good. An interesting case is quite recently, uh, it was um, not a huge company, but sort of a medium-sized company. We were encouraging them to use serverless to build their new products. And we spoke to their team. They were quite happy, but they wanted to talk to their talk to their board. And somebody on their board with a technical background said they tried serverless with a company four years ago. And he wouldn't recommend it. There wasn't the tooling around observability or the tooling around development uh, for it to be effective. So we had to give a lot of reassurance about that, you know, point to a lot of resources, point to a lot of companies um, that help in that space of observability, and then do that proof of concept. And after we did that proof of concept, the company were very reassured that serverless is really the way to go. So I think to some extent, serverless has some brand image issues, uh, partly because the, the, the term is so broad partly because people think of the framework alone and partly because people keep making the joke that there are servers. Um, but there is, uh, there is so much more tooling and observability tooling in particular has got so much better uh, over the past years. And the acceleration of this tooling seems to, go, seems to go faster every week. So I think it was more difficult. Now it's becoming the clear winner and it's just a case of dealing with those brand image issues that serverless or cloud-native based approaches might have from the past. Okay. Um, my second question is that, okay, so when you go to Teams, so you take serverless and uh, the, the, the related services, that's fine. But uh, so so organization to organization, you may have different uh, tech stack or programming language in place. Okay. So one place you can, you can, you can use JavaScript, the other place you may find .NET being used or Python being used. How do you... How do you keep your team to cope with the sort of uh, varied, uh, you know, uh, technical challenges that uh, that 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 may uh, come along? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, so our teams are all full stack engineers that work across a range of languages. Um, obviously, people become particular experts in particular uh, frameworks or particular languages over time. Um, a lot of time when clients want to use a, maybe a less common programming language or maybe an older programming language, our challenges are not about you know, how we're going to build it. We're normally very capable of being able to build in, in those things, uh, but it's more about how are they going to hire developers later to you know, keep maintaining their systems and keep growing out the functionality because we often work with clients either to launch their initial product or transition their company, and then we help them in the hiring process and help them build and train a team. So we, we have also um, a lot of experience in hiring because we're, we're a company that's grown quite quickly over the last years. So we have quite a good understanding of what the marketplace of developers looks like. So often we try and challenge our clients to think about how they're going to keep their company having a good uh, set of candidates for the development jobs that they have. And that often makes them keen to use a, a mainstream language. 
Um, but service obviously has the flexibility to use any language. And we had a client, uh, quite a big client fairly recently, uh, where we did a completely serverless PHP project. Now, PHP is a language we have a, a lot of experience uh, in the company from when we started in Paris. And PHP is very, is very popular in France still and is a language that I've got quite a bit of familiarity with. Um, but it's not something that I would choose for a new project. They had constraints about the team they already had and they didn't want to, you know, their technical leads didn't want to move away from the language. So we did use a custom runtime via a Lambda layer and it's, it's gone very well. And it, you'd be surprised how well PHP works with serverless. But as they've had more and more microservices, they've started to experiment with different languages saying, okay, we're going to do a new microservice. Let's try this one in Python or let's try this one in Rust. Actually, they're experimenting with it in the minutes. So I think they're moving from PHP to new language, to a new language. But I think what we're going to see more and more is a, a use of multiple languages, depending on what's best for the job. They're largely I encourage uh, TypeScript-based serverless uh, if there's no language preference from the client these days. I mean, that, that, that's absolutely a perfect uh, um, answer you gave, because even when we, when we moved to serverless, we had this, uh, you know, the dilemma of should we go with JavaScript or Node or uh, should we look at uh, uh, Golang or something else? So then one, 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 one way of looking at it was we already had JavaScript engineers because the front end was already in Node, React, and et cetera. So we thought, okay. Why don't we just capitalize on the knowledge we have rather than bringing a new uh, new programming language, a new skill that we need to either upskill our engineers or bring you know uh, new engineers from outside. So that really you know uh, played uh, uh, beautifully for our benefit in uh, making use of uh, the existing uh, knowledge we had. So that says you know it's a very good point. Um, why don't you talk about your uh, sort of uh, passion in development like uh, so you have these um, sls dev tools right so that's kind of quite uh, interesting uh, interesting thing so why don't you talk about uh, how you sp- how you find time to uh, develop this and uh, you know what sort of uh, uh, the sort of feedbacks you receive sure yes yeah. so in terms of how i find time this started as a bit of a side project for me i was working on with one of our clients on a, a serverless project and um, getting a bit frustrated at jumping to different AWS consoles all the time. So one weekend, I just put a few hours aside one evening uh, to just try and code something to let me get that feedback faster. It starts off as a bash script and then merged into sort of a command line node script. And finally, the uh, command line sort of graphical user interface that you can see uh, at SLS DevTools, which is a tool now. And it's sort of providing targeted metrics, uh, the logs hot reloading, and more recently, we've added a lot of EventBridge support. Um, and we actually have a team at Theodore maintaining this product at the moment, um, adding new functionality and improving the quality of the tool and working with the service community to get pull requests from the community merged, resolving issues and trying to gain feedback from as many people as possible. So I do encourage anyone who's playing with the tool uh, or interested in looking at the tool to really open issues, get in touch with the team. They're very open over Twitter to talk. Um, but yeah, it started off as a side project. And then, as I said, we've got a few people at Theodore who are starting to maintain it. And then the teams that we do have that are working with uh, completely serverless EventBridge-based products, projects, they're, um, they're hitting a pain point about ejecting events uh, when they're developing. Because when we had API gateway fronted lambdas, it's quite easy to just test them with Postman or curl or through the SLS invoke command. But with EventBridge, it became a bit more difficult. People started writing custom scripts to inject events. Um, and then finally, we added that into uh, SLS DevTools. So on the bottom right, you can tab down there, see the different event buses you have inside of EventBridge. Pressing I will open like a modal inside of the CLI tool where you can inject a custom event and it will you know, pre-fill the source of the events. 
And also now we support the EventBridge schema registry. Obviously, if you're deployed in a region where it's available, you can uh, press the R key on any of the event buses and see the different EventBridge schemas. So the discovered events that comes from the EventBridge discovery, uh, but also the predefined uploaded schemas. Then entering into one of those, you can see the different events uh, structures that are inside of there. And you can sort of have a multi-page form inside of the command line to be able to fill in the various attributes. And we're working now on making it very easy to re-trigger events. Um, you know, if you're, if you're debugging, just to keep re-triggering the same events. And also potentially looking into how can we relaunch lost events, which was something you touched on earlier. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a side project that was uh, a very quick proof of concept and it helped me personally. Rolled that out across a couple of teams just to get their feedback and try and help them in their development. And then finally, we actually have a couple of developers now maintaining this at Theodo and working with the community and uh, companies like Thundra, which is a service observability company. Their CTO made a pull request last weekend. A few other people are opening issues. So really, it's starting to get a bit of the community about it. And my main focus is really, I mean, it's a completely open source tool. It's not a commercial tool uh, in terms of you know how we're building it. It's all open source for the community. And I just want to get as many people involved as possible because I think there is still a pain point in having that one-stop shop um, in your terminal to be able to get better observability as you're developing. It's not a replacement for observability tools like New Relic, Thundra, Epsigon, Lumigo. It's really uh, like the Chrome dev tools are to front-end development. Having that place you can get a view on the quick metrics that you need to see and be able to react to those as you're coding, as well as making uh, the number of clicks in the AWS console a bit reduced. Really interesting, really interesting. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation with Sheen and Nicole, and thank you to both of them for taking the time to talk to Serverless Transformation. If you do get the chance to check out the LEGO Engineering publication on Medium, they're doing some really interesting stuff in Serverless. If you're interested in SLS DevTools, do check out the project, and the team are really looking for feedback, so raise issues via GitHub or get in touch with them via Twitter. Do check out our Medium, serverless-transformation.com, and do subscribe to the podcast for future episodes. Thank you for listening, 